TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features the design curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, Paola Antonelli. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW. Here's Paola Antonelli. So um, those of us who believe in heaven have some sort of idea of what heaven would be. And in my idea, heaven is satisfied curiosity. I think of heaven as a really comfortable cloud where I can just lie down with my belly down like I was watching TV when I was a child and my elbows up. And I can basically look everywhere I want, see every movie I've always wanted to see. And in the same kind of trance that you can feel sometimes in the subway in New York when you're reading, there's something really soothing and easy. Well, the funny thing is that I already have that kind of life in a way uh, because I discovered, it took me a while to understand it, but when I uh, discovered around 24 years of age that I was much more comfortable with objects than with people, I finally decided to really embrace this passion. And I basically lived my life in a sort of a trance, and I look around and everything I see is just the beginning of a long story. Just to give you an example, this is the exhibition Humble Masterpieces. The exhibition was meant to be a way to um, have children think of doing, uh, you know when they do homeworks at home, instead of having a tray with two peas, I was hoping that they would go into the kitchen cabinet or the mother's handbag and do their museum quality design collection on a tray. So uh, everybody's always suggesting new humble masterpieces, and at MoMA we put out some books uh, just for people to suggest their own humble masterpieces. And when you do that, usually you get um, 80% porn and 20% real suggestions. And instead, it was all, almost, all good suggestions. And a lot of nationalism came in. For instance, I didn't know that the Spaniards invented the mop. But they were very proud. So every Spaniard said La Fregona. Italians did the pizza. And I wanted to show you also the suggestions from Kentucky are pretty good. They had moonshine, laundry detergents, and liquid nails. So think of your own. Send them on if you want to. They're always welcome. But an exhibition like that made me understand even more what I've been thinking of for 13 years ever since I got to MoMA. I'm Italian. In Italy... Design is normal. You know, different parts of the world have a knack for different things. Like I, I was re- just recently in Argentina and in Uruguay, and the default way of building homes in the country is a beautiful modernism that you don't see elsewhere, but the contemporary art was terrible. In Italy, in Milan especially, contemporary art really doesn't have that much of a place, but design, oh my God, what you find at the store at the corner without going to any kind of fancy store is the kind of refined design that makes everybody think that we are all so sophisticated. It's just what you find at the store. And New York has another kind of knack for contemporary art. I'm always amazed. Three-year-olds know who uh, Richard Serra is and take you to the galleries. But design, for some reason, is still misunderstood for decoration. It's really interesting. What many people think when I say the word design is they think of decoration, interior decoration. They think of somebody choosing fabrics. And instead, design can be that, of course, but it can also be this. It can be a school of design in Jerusalem that tries to find a better way to design gas masks for people because, as you know, Israel 
Israel deploys one gas mask per person, including babies. So what these designers do is they find a way to uh, lower, oops, lower the neckline so that instead of being completely strangled, a teenager can also sip a Coke. They try to make a toddler's um, gas mask make it in such a way that it could, the toddler can be held by the parent because proximity of the body is so important, and then they make a little tent for the baby. However cruel, however um, ruthless you can think this is, it's a great design, and it is miles away from the fancy furniture, but still, it's part of my same field of passion. And what I've been doing at MoMA since the beginning is to try to harness the power of MoMA, because it's great to work there. You really have power in that people usually tend to know about your exhibition or see the exhibitions. And uh, that is power, because in a design museum, I wouldn't have as many visitors. I'm very well aware that 80% of my public is there to see Picasso and Matisse, and then they stumble upon my show, and I keep them there. But what I've been trying to do is something that the curators at MoMA in my department have been doing ever since the museum was founded in 1929, which is to try and see what's going on in the world and try to use that authority in order to make things better. Um, Charles Eames, the first time, and then Charles and Ray Eames, the second time, were involved in two competitions. One in 1940 was about organic furniture, and the second one in 1948 was low-cost furniture for the GIs coming back from the war that then sparked a whole line of furniture. And then there was good design um, for very low price. There were, there were a lot of programs in architecture and design that were about pointing people in the direction of a better design for a better life. So I started out in 95 with this exhibition that was called Mutant Materials in Contemporary Design. It was about um, a new phase, in my opinion, in the world of design, in that materials could be customized by the designers themselves. And that um, put me in touch with uh, such diverse um, design examples as the aerogels from the Lawrence Livermore Lab in California. At that time, they were beginning to be brought into the civilian market, and at the same time, the gorgeous work of Takeshi Ishiguro, who did these beautiful salt and pepper containers that are made of rice dough. So you see, it goes, the range is really quite diverse. And then, for instance, this other exhibition that was in, entitled Work Spheres in 2001, where I asked different designers to come up with ideas for the new type of work styles that were happening in the world at that time. And you see IDO there. Uh, it was beautiful. It was called Personal Skies. The idea was that if you had a cubicle, you could project a sky on top of your head and have your own cielo in una stanza, sky in a room. It's a very famous Italian song. And this lets me introduce a very important idea about design. Designers are the biggest synthesizers in the world. What they do best is make a synthesis of human needs, current conditions in economy, in materials, in sustainability issues, and then what they do at the end, if they're good, is much more than the sum of its parts. Um, there's been many other exhibitions in the meantime, but I don't want to focus on my shows. I would like instead to talk about 
how great some designers are. I've always had a hard time with the word maverick. You know, I came to the United States 13 years ago, and to this day I have to ask, you know, what does that mean? So this morning I went to see on the dictionary, and it said that there was this gentleman that was not branding its cattle, therefore he was not following everybody's lead, and therefore he was a maverick. So, I, you know, designers do need to be mavericks, because the best way to design a successful object, and also an object that we were missing before is to pretend that either it never existed or their people will be able to have a new behavior with it. So SAFE is the last exhibition that I did at MoMA and it ended at the beginning of last year and it was about design that deals with safety and deals with protection. It's a long story because it started before 2001 and it was called Emergency and then when 9-11 happened I had a shock, and I cancelled the exhibition until slowly but surely it came back as a half-full glass instead of half-empty, and it was about protection and safety. But it ranged from such um, items as a complete demining equipment to this kind of uh, water-sterilizing straws. But what is interesting is that um, we don't need to talk about design and art anymore, but design uses whatever tools it has at its disposal in order to make a point. It's a sense of economy and a sense also of humor. This is a beautiful um, project by Ralph Borland, who's South African. It's uh, a suit for civil disobedience. The idea is that when you have a riot or a protest and the police comes towards you, you're wearing this thing, it's like a big heart, and it has, um, it has a, an amplifier, a loudspeaker over your heart, so your, your heartbeat is amplified and the police is reminded. It's like having a flower in front of the, of the rifle. And also you can imagine with a whole group of people with the same suit will have this mounting collective heartbeat that will be scary to the police. And then said, you know, so designers sometimes don't do things that are immediately functional, but they're functional to our understanding of issues. Uh, Don and Raby, um, Tony Don and Fiona Raby did this series of objects that are about our anguish and our uh, paranoia, like this hideaway furniture that's made in the same wood as your floor, so it disappears completely and you can hide away, or even better, the huggable atomic mushroom, which got me an article on the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists of the United States. I don't think it ever happened before at MoMA, or this Faraday chairs that is supposed to protect you from radiations. But the interesting thing in the exhibition is that the discovery was that the, self, the ultimate shelter is your sense of self. And there are quite a few designers that are working on this particular topic. This is Cindy van der Bremen, who's a, a Dutch designer that's done the series of capsters. They are, um, they are athletic, athletic gear for Muslim women that enables them to ski, play tennis, do whatever they want to do without having to um, uncap themselves. And even better, you know, sometimes by doing this kind of research, you encounter such beautiful ideas of design. Tuan Verdonk is really young, I think he's 27, and working together with some psychologists, he did a series of toys that are for sensorial stimulation for children that have psychological impairments. They're quite beautiful. They range from this fluffy toy that is about hugging you because autistic children like to be hugged tight, so it has a spring inside, all the way to this doll with a mirror so the child can see him or herself in the mirror and regain a sense of self. 
Um, design really looks upon the whole world, and it considers the world in all of its different ranges. I was recently at a conference on luxury organized by the Herald Tribune in Istanbul, and it was really interesting because I was the last speaker. And before me, there were people that were really talking about luxury. And I didn't want to be a party pooper, but at the same time, I felt that I had to kind of bring back the discourse to reality. And the truth is that uh, there's very different kinds of luxury. And uh, there's luxury that is relative for people that don't have that much. But so really, design takes everything into account. And the interesting thing is that as the technology advances, as we become more and more wireless and impalpable, designers instead want us to be hands-on, sometimes hammer-on. You see, this is a whole series of furniture that wants to engage you physically, and even this chair that you have to open up and then sit on so that it takes your imprint, all the way to this beautiful series of objects that are considered designed by Anna Mir in Barcelona, from this kind of bijou made with human hair, to this chocolate nipples, to these intra-toe candies that your lover is supposed to suck from your toes. It's quite beautiful because somehow this is a gorgeous moment for design. It's, um, uh, many years ago I heard a mathematician from Vienna that his, whose name was Marchetti um, explain how the um, innovation in the military industry, therefore the secret innovation, and the innovation in the civilian society are two sinusoids that are kind of opposed. And that makes sense. In moments of war, there's great technological innovation, and instead in the world you have to do without, well, during the Second World War you had to do without steel, you had to do without aluminum. And then, as peace comes, all of these technologies get all of a sudden available for the civilian market. Many of you might know that the potato chip chair by Charles and Ray Eames comes exactly from that kind of instance. The fiberglass was available for civilian use all of a sudden. I think that this is a strange moment. The rhythm of the sinusoids has changed tremendously, just like the rhythm of our life in the past 25 years. So I'm not sure anymore what the wavelength is, but it surely is a very important moment for design. Because not only is the technology proceeding, not only is computing technology making open source possible also in the world of design, but also the idea of sustainability, which is not only sustainability from the viewpoint of CO2 emissions and footprint, but also sustainability of human interrelationships, is very much part of the work of so many designers. And that's why designers more and more are working on behaviors rather than on objects, especially the good ones, not all of them. And I wanted to show you, for instance, the work of Mathieu Léonard, which is quite fantastic. He's another young designer from France who's working, and at this point he's working also with pharmaceuticals companies on new ways to engage patients, especially children, in taking their medicines with constants and with uh, certainty. You know, for instance, this is a beautiful container for asthma medicine that kind of inflates itself when it's time for you to take the medicine, so the child has to go to release and relieve the container itself. And instead, this other medicine is something that you can draw on your skin, so intradermal delivery enables you to joyfully be involved in this particular kind of delivery. Similarly, there's the work of people like Marty Guichet that tries to involve you in a way that is uh, really about making everything pass through your mouth so that you learn from uh, your mistakes or from your taste orally. 
The next show that I'm going to work on is about the relationship between design and science. I'm trying to find not the metaphors, but rather the points in common, the common gripes, the common uh, issues, the common preoccupations. And I think that it will enable us to go a little further in this idea of design as um, an instruction, as a direction rather than a prescription of form and the possibility of visualizing different scales and therefore really work at the scale of the very small to make it very big and very meaningful. Thank you. That was Paola Antonelli, recorded at the TED Conference in Monterey, California, March 2007. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED and made possible in part through the support of BMW. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.